Yes, you are listening to Bible Study Wednesday, August the 28th in the year of our Lord 2019. And we're going to be taking a look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Bible study is an opportunity for congregations maybe to meet in the morning, especially if they don't have a full-time pastor, and listen to a half hour of Bible study, followed by their talking about it uh, afterwards. I know one congregation sometimes is an hour after the Bible study is over. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5. This is law and gospel, and as you well know, we love reading passages where the law and the gospel is very clearly defined, because the vast majority of people do not understand what Lutherans mean by law and gospel. Oh, I should say what the Bible means by law and gospel. A lot of times they think it's dealing with content, that the law is telling you what to do. And the gospel is saying, well, because you can't do it, don't worry about it, you are forgiven. Well, the problem with that is that isn't really what law and gospel is in this context. Law is not so much about content, but about application to your personal life. Therefore, every sermon I ever preach has both law and gospel in it. I take the text and I find where are you sinning? Where are you falling short of the glory of God? That's what we mean by applying the distinction of law and gospel, and that would be about the law. But then, in order to bring you comfort, we now talk about the gospel. What has God done to relieve you of your worries. So, without further ado, let's begin Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really what the Reformation was all about. How are we justified? Are we justified by grace? Or are we justified by faith? Now, you can say it in a way that is correct. You can say, I have been justified by grace through faith. But when you just say, I'm justified by grace alone, That is a kind of a a view that was held at the time of the Reformation, that grace is a power source from God. And insofar as you make use of grace, then God begins to like you, love you, and finally save you. That grace, therefore, is something you grasp onto, But the proper understanding of grace in this context, from the point of view of the Bible, is it's really talking about God's attitude towards you. We talked about this uh, yesterday with Mark Smith, the distinctions between justice, mercy, and grace. If God was just towards you, you'd get what you deserve, eternal hell. 
But God is merciful, which means you do not get what you deserve. And that also shows that he is gracious in giving you what you do not deserve. Notice how grace isn't the substance that you receive from God in order to do good enough works to be saved. It's God's attitude towards you. And the question, one of them that I ask a lot of times to help people understand this is, okay, you die and you go to heaven. To whom will you give all the credit to for your salvation? And boy, just about everybody says who is a Christian, they say Jesus. Now, how can you give all the credit for your salvation to Jesus and then turn around and think that it is by your works that you got saved? You see, it's it's an absolute contradiction. This is really a huge distinction between Christianity and every other religion because every other religion tells you what you need to do. Christianity tells you what is necessary to be believed. And this faith, namely trust in the promises of the gospel, is why God considers you saved. Now, what is the gospel? Well, it's right there in the verse. That we have peace with God through what? Our works? No, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how did God... Jesus Christ, bring peace with the Father. Well, on the cross, and we always have to go back to the cross, he suffered the punishment you and I deserved, and God laid it on his son. For God so loved the world. How much did he so love the world? He gave his only begotten son, that whoever obeys? No, whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. So we have this peace with God. We were at odds with God, but because of the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross, he paid for our sins. And that's huge. No no other religion even gets near that. Going on with verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, once more, this understanding of grace sounds like, well, that's something that we get, some substance or whatever, but no, understand it as God's grace. Through Jesus Christ, You obtain access by faith. What does that mean? By trusting the promises of God. And what do you obtain access into? Into God's gracious attitude in which we stand. Uh, The closest I can think about this is that you're an orphan. And you get adopted. Now, you believe you are adopted. You believe that these are your new parents. And what has that provided you? You have obtained access into a family 
into their gracious attitudes towards you. Even when you're disobedient, they still feed you. They still dress you. They still give you a bed to sleep in. They still transport you to school, etc., etc. You did nothing to get adopted. And that's, by the way, the phrase that God uses in Galatians and elsewhere to talk about how we stand in the grace of God. And therefore, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, wait a minute. If we're already standing with God, what's the hope that we have? Well, we're still sinful human beings. And here on earth, we will never do a perfectly sinless good work because the old Adam also has motivation that's always wrong. But the new Adam's motivation is always proper, namely love of Christ. So what's the hope we're looking forward to? Heaven after the day of judgment, where we will see the total glory of God and we'll see Jesus even more than the disciples did on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was brilliant. But we will have new bodies and be able to see God face to face. Now, the Romans at this time are under persecution because of the emperor. He does not like Christians, and the Jews really speak out against them. So Paul moves in verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. I challenge you to find another religion in the world that has that concept, that we have sufferings and we rejoice in them. You see, this is really what was important. One of Luther's great writings in 1518 was the Heidelberg Disputation. And what he said is, no, you cannot find God in the world. You cannot find what God is like by your experience. You will always end up with an idol because you have bad things happening in your life and you will jump to the conclusion, this is happening because I did something wrong. What did I do to deserve this? And therefore, you begin to think, I need to get on God's right side. And so you begin to do good works. And like the Pharisee in that one parable, you say, thank God I'm not like that tax collector because I tithe, because I fast. Now, he was looking at the ceremonial laws, not the moral laws. And so many people do that today. Oh, I know I'm going to heaven. I go to church every Sunday. I uh, go to Bible class. I read my Bible. I take my children to confirmation. I, I, I. No. The reason you're going to heaven is because of God, God, God. God created you. God died for you. God blessed you with the forgiveness of sins and the robe of righteousness. God adopted you into his family without anything you were doing on your part. And God will be bringing you into the eternal heaven after the day of judgment. So why do we rejoice in suffering? Well, if you really want to know what God is like, you need to look at the sufferings of Jesus. Why would he do what he did? 
namely suffer for your sins because of his great love for you. And therefore, when we have sufferings, we realize that God is sending them for a specific reason. Why? Sufferings produce endurance. That means we're able to fight against the terrible temptations of the devil. And endurance produces character. A believer's character is quite different than an unbeliever's character. Just take a look at it. Uh, Today, I read the headlines in the daily newspaper where some federal judge has now decided that it's okay to kill black people and Jews. They call it abortion. It's just amazing to me that a human being who knows what happened during World War II can still be in support of the death of Jews and blacks because those are the majority of individuals who are being aborted. In fact, it's just ridiculous. These very same people who are for abortion then turn around and are bemoaning the fact that little children are being shot to death. Well, that's murder. How they do not understand that the death of a child in the womb is also murder is beyond me. But at any rate, we suffer. Because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, And when you have proper character, namely believing the promises of God, that produces hope. Recently, I've been watching a number of YouTube kind of films about people in prison. And some of them are in there for life because of the crimes they did. But guess what? The only thing that keeps them going is hope. They keep protesting that they were innocent, for example, of of the crime and are trying to get out of the crime. And and sometimes it happens. Remember at one time the Supreme Court made a ruling that the way that executions were being carried out was inappropriate, unconstitutional, so things had to change. But everybody in prison has hope that things are going to change. But there is no sure hope in prison. There is no promise from the warden. Well, if you're on good behavior, we'll let you out. No. The hope that's being spoken of here is a hope based on the promises of Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And that hope will not put us to shame. Why? Well, when are you put to shame? When you have a sure hope. For example, there was one woman in prison, and her time for the crime had come up, and she was going to be released from prison. Now, the procedure at this prison is that you finally have to go to the desk where you were registered to come into prison, and they just check your record. And she had an outstanding warrant from another state. And instead of leaving the prison that day, 
she was returned to her cell until that could be worked out. So hope did put her to shame because it was a vain hope. Jeremiah talks about that when he's speaking about the false prophets who give you vain hopes. God had said, I'm coming because of your unbelief and destroying Jerusalem and the temple. And the false prophet said, oh, no, 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 that cannot be true. Jeremiah is a liar. God would never destroy his own temple. They gave vain hopes based on the false promises of their dreams coming out of their heads rather than the word of God. But we Christians will never be put to shame. Why? Because, as the verse goes on, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, when did that occur? We call it Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit, through baptism, became a part of your life. And that also means your body is the, that's right, temple of the Holy Spirit. So, Paul wants to explain how this all came about. For while we were still weak, and uh, this is the end of verse 6, Romans 5, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for believers. Although he did die for believers, but not believers alone. He died also for unbelievers. And at the right time, the Bible verse, when the fullness of time had come, when it was the appropriate time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, into the world. And he came for one purpose, to die for the ungodly. Then Paul uses a human example, verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. What's he saying? That in the real world, boy, very few people will stand up even for the righteous and join with them in the punishment or the persecution that they're enduring. Now, perhaps if it's a good person, you really like them, maybe it's a relative or something, you might be willing to suffer with them. But listen to verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's one of the uh, beautiful statements that Martin Luther does in the Heidelberg Disputation. Whereas in the world, we get to love people who are attractive to us. But in Christianity, God declares them to be attractive because of the blood-bought crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So it's just the very opposite. We like people who look good. God makes us look good in his eyes by forgiving our sins and dressing us in the robe of righteousness. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us.
verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, not by our works, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And that's found in 2 Corinthians 5, where it's very clear that because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, God the Father is already reconciled to you. See, there's another huge difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion, they want to be reconciled to God, and they're trying to get God to be reconciled to them by their works. In Christianity, because of the death of Christ, paying for our sins, God is already reconciled to us. And the task of the church is to get people to be reconciled to God through believing what Jesus did and through trusting the promises about the hope of the forgiveness of sins, the robe of righteousness, and heaven eternally after the day of judgment. So that's how we are saved from the wrath of God, because Jesus took the punishment upon himself. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You know, do you understand what's being said there? It's saying, look, when you were his enemies, God so loved you that he reconciled himself to you by the death of Jesus Christ. Now that you are his child, now that you are reconciled, how can you say that you're not going to be saved by the life of Jesus? How can you look at anything that's happening in your life right now and saying, oh, this is the worst. There's no hope for me at all. That's a denial of the promises of God. There's nothing that can happen to you in this world. And that's really quite a promise from God that he's not watching over you, taking care of you, and working out all things to your good. So, verse 11, the last one we're looking at, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Boy, there's nothing more important than being reconciled to God. If you look at every other religion in the world, there's not one of them where the God they worship does the work of being reconciled to you and you to him. Not one of them. But God is the actor totally in your salvation. He acted to reconcile himself to you because the obstacle was our sin that stood between us and him. He took care of that by putting his son to death to forgive that sin. That's the tremendous gift that he was given. And now that we have been reconciled, that God has been reconciled to us, now it's the task of the church. We don't go around saying, 
if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be reconciled to God. No, we say you have been reconciled to God the Father through the death of Jesus Christ. Therefore, be reconciled to God. And what does that take? It takes faith in the promises. In other words, you believe that the work of Jesus Christ really was for you. You believe that what he did was sufficient. As he himself says from the cross, it is finished. And therefore, with that hope in your heart, you just desire to be reconciled to God, and your part is done by the power of the Holy Spirit given to you. The more you believe the promises of the gospel, the stronger your faith will become. But it doesn't take a strong faith to be in heaven, even a weak faith. The faith of a mustard seed is sufficient. Because on the day of judgment, God will be looking at your works to see if they were really fruit of the Holy Spirit, which every Christian will have done because of the promise of God. On tomorrow's Law and Gospel, did you hear about the Methodist University that has hired a chaplain for its students who is a female Muslim? How could that happen? Well, it shows how the church is really being persecuted these days. And we'll have more to talk about that. Till tomorrow, God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.